You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, our Father, we pray now that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, that you would make us. For the sake of Christ and for our own joy, we pray. Amen. May be seated. If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan, and I love time travel. Uh, I always have, not actually traveling in time, but stories about time travel. When I was, that'd be cool though, if you just knew, just found that out about me, that I am a time traveler. Anyway, when I was probably a sixth to eighth grader, I like wore out my VHS copies of all of the Back to the Futures. When I was a child, I still consider Back to the Future, Back to the Future 3 a good movie, but it's not. But the first two are great. My kids haven't seen those yet, uh, but their minds have still been blown by, like the animated Meet the Robinsons and Freebirds. Time travel, just conundrums. It's great. Someday maybe they'll watch Terminator 2 and 12 Monkeys. Have you guys gathered that I like movies yet? I, I really like movies. Well, in my research this week, other than like mythology that comes from India and Japan and apart from stories like Rip Van Winkle, Rip Van Winkle where a guy kind of time travels in that he like wakes up 20 years later missing the Revolutionary War. Uh, Wikipedia tells me that uh, The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens in 1843 is one of the very first published time travel stories. And of course, Scrooge, he uh, travels through past and present and future, but he's only traveling as an observer, not as a participant. But it's got a lot of the best time travel motifs, like origins and alternate timelines and all of those things. Scrooge is able to see in the future, and it changes him, changes his present. 
Well, this section of Romans 8 is like an H.G. Wells novel or something. If you read through carefully, it seems that Paul's conception of reality, like in a time travel movie, it's like pixelating and like changing around. It's like he's really confused. He's talking about past things as if they're future, future things as if they're present or even past. It's like he's like a disappearing image in Marty McFly's Polaroid or something. Like, he, he can't figure out what's going on and where he is in the timeline. But ultimately, this section is all about hope. How does the future speak to our present? This is a time travel expedition here for Paul and for us tonight. Paul's writing this letter. We haven't done much context in, context work in this whole book. If you're new joining us, we're just spending four weeks together in chapter eight as we prepare in this Advent season for Christmas. But Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, as you might have gathered from its title. The whole context of this letter comes on the heels of when the emperor, the Roman emperor Claudius, expelled all of the Jews out of Rome. And after several years, they were eventually allowed to return. But now we have a church in Rome, Rome made up of Jewish Christians and then Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, who have never really had to coexist together. And they're trying to figure out what life is like and is to be like together as one body. And on top of that, the Jews for many years had been experiencing great suffering as exiled refugees out of that city. And now the entire church, Jew and Gentile, is beginning to feel the first like pulses of cultural and governmental opposition and persecution. So in reflection to the peace and joy that is experienced by Christians that we've thought through the past two weeks in the first half of chapter 8, tonight in verses 18 through 30, Paul is essentially going to say and to ask, okay, yeah, all that's great. All that peace and joy stuff it's really wonderful, like when your children are behaving or perhaps even still asleep, uh, when, you've got, when you're up early in the morning and the heater is blowing and you've got a warm cup of coffee or cocoa and like Nat King Cole is back there singing Hark the Herald Angels or something. Like when things are wonderful, yeah, it's really great. And we can say, yes, yes, God does bring peace and joy. But how in the world can we say that peace and joy can still be known and experienced when the cancer comes, when you lose your job, when your spouse or your children seem impossible to live with, when you long and pray for a spouse and children to live with, when the economy crashes or fires or tsunamis come and destroy. What then, Paul? How in the world what, what are you talking about with this peace and joy stuff? Well, anticipating your questions, Paul answers with three sections focusing on three different things that groan together in hope. And we'll see those tonight. Three sections tonight and what you heard Quinn read, the groaning hope of creation, the groaning hope of Christians, and the groaning hope of the Spirit. Now, one last thing before we jump into this just theologically dense maybe like the most theologically dense 13 verses in the entire Bible here. Like John Piper took eight and a half years to preach through the entire book of Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones was up to 12 years and halfway through chapter 14 when he got an illness that caused him to retire and he didn't get to finish. Uh, all that to say, we have enough in like just the first verse, like verse 18 to spend an entire sermon on. So we're going to get the highlights. So let's meet for coffee this week if you still have questions, which undoubtedly we all will. Okay. 
the groaning hope of creation. Last week, Clint got us to the mind-blowing reality that Christians share in all of the benefits and privileges of Christ as a co-heir, as like, just as Christ, the, the firstborn, the, like the oldest son, when we are united to him in faith, we get his firstbornness. We get all of the benefits of being an heir of, by spiritual adoption, provided, verse 17, that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. So it's that suffering to glory theme that he now continues here in verse 18 as he's trying to think through, is the suffering even worth it? So verse 18, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So in these first five verses, Paul considers our present, and then he jumps into the DeLorean and punches it several thousands of years into the future, and then he punches it way back to the very dawn of creation. He's like flying all over the place. He says that the sufferings of this present time, the, literally the now time, the sufferings of the now time are not even worth comparing to the glory to be, re be revealed in the then time, in the future time. We've already seen him say in verse 17 that suffering is the path to glory. And while that's true, here he's saying that suffering and glory aren't even comparable things. They're to be considered together, but we can't compare them. It's not like they're equal sides of a balance. Or even like the more suffering that goes on this side of the scale, then more glory comes on this side. No, suffering in the now time is like completely blown out of the water by the glory that is to be revealed. Like if you had like a marble on one side of the balance and put the, put the scale on a table on the side of a dock, the glory to be revealed is the breaching humpback whale that crashes the marble, the scale, the table, and the dock. Like it's just, it's not even worth considering them to be compared together. So that's the good news and more on that as we go. But why is there a marble in the first place? And sometimes the chronic illness, the pain, the relational conflict, it sure doesn't feel as small as a marble, does it? Well, all of the sufferings of the now time are here and experienced because of the back then time. When at the fall, on the second page of human existence, humanity as God's sub-rulers of creation led a revolt. They led creation in a coup attempt of the good and high king. And so in verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, subject, who subjected it. Creation, like all of it, lions and geckos, flamingos and flounder, tectonic plates and wind currents, mitochondria and supernova, all of it subjected to futility. Because of mankind, the pinnacle of creation representing it and leading it down this road, God subjected all of it to futility. And this is the exact same word that we spent about eight weeks thinking through in the book of Ecclesiastes. This hevelness, this uh, 
frustrated vaporness that all of creation experiences. That just as God sent Adam and Eve out of his full presence of friendship and peace, that now humanity experiences pain, struggle, frustration, futility, well, so do dogs and oak trees. And yet just as Adam and Eve received a promise of reconciliation and restoration, creation shares in that promise. Creation shares in expectation, expecting a full sense of what it was created for. No longer dying, deadened, or dead. Not decaying or deteriorating, but glory. And creation waits with eager longing. It's almost as if like the ants and the mountains, as they are waiting. It's like the, the, the imagery that Paul is using here, it's like they're like up on their tiptoes, like just trying to see over the horizon, to see the future glory that will be revealed when God makes all things new. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth in, until now. This groaning from pulsing earthquakes to dying cats to the Ebola virus. These are painful groans, but they are groans of hope and expectation. We flew past that little phrase at the end of verse 20, didn't we? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Hope is a confident, fixed expectation for what in the future is certain to come. Like we, we use this word wrongly all the time, right? We can say, like, I, I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl. And we all know that ain't going to happen, right? So that, what I mean by when I say I hope the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl, I wish the Cowboys would win the Super Bowl. Wishing and hoping are entirely different things. Creation groans with hope, with birth pains. Pains, yes, extremely painful. I know all of you women out there who have given birth are like, yeah, says this guy, right? Like, I get a cold, I get a, st a stuffy nose and a sore throat, and I'm laid up in bed watching movies all day, much less birth pains. But birth pains, they're, they're painful, but they are purposeful. There is life on the other end of that pain. So birthing women, while screaming and cursing the name of their husbands, are nevertheless in pain because of the life that is to come. There is life on the other side of this pain. And that's what tsunamis and disease are. God did not subject creation to futility with like just a punch in the stomach. Like I'm angry that you rebelled against me, so I'm just going to punch you in the stomach with pain that doesn't mean anything. Meaningless pain. No, Pain, yes, but pain that is going somewhere. Painful groans through which God is birthing something new. Restored, glorified. So there's a groaning hope of creation as all of creation is up on its tiptoes, waiting and longing for God to act and make all things new. But secondly now, Paul says that we join in with creation with groanings of our own. The groaning hope of Christians. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in 
And amidst our own suffering, we join in with creation, with our own painful groans. Why? And here's where we get the first really confusing moment of time travel going on. It's like Marty McFly is disappearing a little bit here. Last week, Clint spent like half of his sermon thinking through adoption. And he did so for good reason, because Paul spends like half of his time thinking about adoption. But the point of that whole section was to give us assurance for the present because of our past adoption as sons and daughters of God. But here, Paul says that we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Like, it hasn't happened yet. So what in the world? Well, here's what's going on. Paul can both simultaneously see that something objective has happened in the past. Humans who were alienated from God, who were living estranged from a good father, but then through his great love and movement towards them in the person of his own son, he makes these former orphans now his new sons and daughters through their active faith in what Jesus, the older brother, has done for them on their behalf in his death and resurrection. And yet, while now Christians share the, la the family last name, what's happened in the past, these former orphans now share the family last name, and all of the benefits of being an heir are surely theirs. It's as good as done. We don't have and experience all of those benefits yet. It's like this is the time between the times. Christians live between worlds. Between worlds of alienation, but yet not full consummation. Not yet full taking hold of and experiencing all of the benefits. It's like if a kind and benevolent father from Tahiti or some tropical paradise somewhere finds some children in like war-torn Syria and he adopts them as his own. They now have a new last name. They now know that something radically life-altering has happened in their lives. Even the people in Syria know something has changed in them. They have a new last name and a new identity, and yet the children must wait. It appears the Tahitian father has much to teach them in growing them to trust him as a good father, not just because he plops them down in some new paradise. Someday they'll live with him, their new family, fully and finally, but not yet. Their adoption is already done, but there are some aspects of not yet. But Christians have the legal adoption papers. We have the down payment. We have a promise of the fullness to come in the Father giving us his spirit. The first fruits. Paul is just like throwing around all kinds of metaphors, and now he, now he goes to the farm. Where a farmer has prepared the soil, he's sown the seed, he's cared for the growing sprouts, but then ultimately he has to just sit around and wait for a few months and pray that there's actually something there to harvest. And then can you imagine, can you imagine the first day after months of working and waiting, of seeing the first head of the wheat blossom open? The first fruits of the harvest are both exciting and also a reliable indicator of what's to come, of a further healthy harvest that's coming behind it. And so, likely referring back to the many verses in chapter prior to Romans 8, Paul is likely talking about here, the, the first fruits of the Spirit, about the small but important work of the Spirit in our lives. Like, you used to get so heated, so heated, when somebody would cut you off on the highway or like sneak in front of you in the parking lot and get that last parking spot. And now, though still a little peeved, 
meh, like, nope, not that big of a deal. Anxiety about what others think about you used to destroy you. Now, though still anxious, you're growing more confident in what God thinks of you rather than what others think of you. These are first fruits. Arguments that used to go nuclear with a spouse or a roommate or a sibling, now they just get to DEFCON 3. First fruits. This is great. In years past, if you wanted something, something that could be purchased or something that could be taken or fantasized in your own mind, you just indulged without thinking. And now you're growing in self-control. Not always and perfectly, but you're beginning to think of others more and more as more important than yourself. These are first fruits, and praise God for what he's doing. Small, incremental actions of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But because sometimes it can feel just like too much, the death that we observe or experience, divorce, disease, the crime, the the famine that we can observe, just the sin and selfishness experienced in our own hearts, maybe even just the small, everyday little nicks and scratches that come with just relational conflict that just accumulate into a life of pain, This kind of expectant and hopeful, while even sad, groaning is an entirely legitimate form of Christian response. An entirely legitimate form of Christian emotion. Perhaps more times of tears. Individually, certainly more together. Perhaps there might ought to be fewer fines and doing greats when someone asks how you're doing. Perhaps more of a, man, I'm doing I'm I'm not that great right now. I don't really understand what's happening in my life. I don't understand what God is doing and why. Things are difficult. I trust him. I'm not really sure what to think. Christians groan, but they join in with creation of expectation, of groans of hope. They have seen the future and they wait for it. They long for it. They are able to endure the present because they have seen the future. And these first fruits are there to urge us on and forward, fixing our hope, our confident expectation, what God is doing, what God will do, and what he is doing now, and what he will fully make us. But it's not all here yet, so we wait and we hope. As God's people waited and hoped for God's Messiah in the person of Jesus and his first advent, now we wait and hope for his second Like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is not a Christmas song. Do you know this? It's a Christian song. This is a song that we ought ought to be like the heartbeat, the pulse of our souls as Christians. We should sing this thing in June. Maybe we'll do that. Some some random Sunday night in June, let's just sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. This is a prayer and a hope of every Christian O come, thou king of nations, bring an end to all our suffering. Bid every pain and sorrow cease and reign now as our prince of peace. Bring an end to creations and our groanings once and for all. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, we pray. But how can Christians hope and endure through groaning? This is still very, very difficult. If it was just a, we know the future thing, I'm not sure that that would be good enough. 
right? Like if we had some, just a picture, an image of eternity, while that might help us and give us hope for a while, I think we might get distracted. We might start to doubt that we actually saw what we think we saw. Well, third, the groaning hope of the Spirit. How can we hope and endure through groaning? Verse 26, Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. In our weakness, in our groaning, that's exactly when the Spirit goes to work. With the sickness, the relational hurt, the miscarriage, our tendency is to think that those are the moments when God has checked out, when he has made himself aloof, and it is difficult to know him. But Paul is telling us the exact opposite. In times of weakness, in times of groaning, that's when the Spirit kicks it up into hyperdrive with groanings of his own to come to us in cultivating deeper and more expectant hope. Perhaps you've heard this verse here used as an explanation for like praying in tongues or something, but I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think this is the kind of thing when we're just like, like this is just too much. Like the pain, the suffering, all of it just like watching the news, just getting, logging onto Facebook for like two minutes. It's just too much, right? Watching my own life, which isn't meeting any of my expectations. And sadness. I don't even know what to pray. I don't know how to pray in this moment, and I certainly don't know what to pray for. And the Holy Spirit is like, yep, I can work with that. I can work with that. Here's a person who is mourning, who is humble, who is poor in spirit, just the kind of thing that I can come and shape and mold. And he intercedes to help the father's children, continuing to trust God as a good father, to help them pray in a way that honors the Lord according to the will of God, Paul says, to trust him. Like if you want to know what I think Paul is talking about here, I, I, I didn't really plan this because of this verse, but as we were singing, Lord, I need you before this sermon, like just reread that whole, the lyrics of that entire song, I think that's what Paul's talking about. The groanings, like, I'm falling apart. I don't even know what to, without you, I need you. And those are the moments that the Spirit comes, interceding and offering, comforting, supporting us with groanings of his own. But wait, I, th I thought that Jesus was the one that intercedes for us, right? An intercessor, this is like a whole big argument in the book of Hebrews, pleading our case of his own merit before the Father, how is it that the Spirit also intercedes? Well, the Puritan John Murray explains, the children of God have two divine intercessors in heaven. Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven, while the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. You guys, Christians, the triune God is more committed to your holiness and to your joy than you are. And in times of weakness, when we might be tempted to just throw in the towel, the Spirit comes to strengthen and to say, not, man, again, this guy, again with the sin, or, man, this girl's just driving me nuts with the anxiety and the doubt. When will she get it together? This is not 
what the Spirit does. The Spirit intercedes in the theater of her own hearts and saying, oh, she needs me. Now is when she needs me, whispering groans of his own, saying, trust the Father. Trust him. He is good. He is always good. Trust in his deep, deep love for you. Rest in the Son's finished work on your behalf. Stop trying to earn your favor. Come to me for comfort and for hope. And what's Paul's response to all this? Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is a really well-known verse, right? It's on coffee mugs. It's on your refrigerator. You've seen it on throw pillows. And what's the popular understanding and interpretation of this verse? If you lose your job, don't worry. There's something better out there for you. Or he broke up with you, not to worry. All things work together for good. There's something, there's, there's undoubtedly someone better out there for you who will make you happier than that chump. Well, the biggest problem with this interpretation, apart from the context before and after, is what, by what we mean by the word good. He works all things together for good. We tend to think he works all things together for more uh, experiential happiness, the context and circumstances of my life to line up exactly the way that I would want them by my limited perspective. It sure seems that the good that God may have in mind is our eternal good, though. The life experienced in the next life with the full benefits of our adoption. Sometimes the best good that God desires for his children is a deeper trust in him rather than perfect circumstances. So he's very likely to send what the world might interpret as bad circumstances in order to wake us up out of a materialistic pursuit of things, of more stuff, self-promotion, to wake us up out of an idolizing of some relationship, or just swimmingly awesome circumstances in which we never need to pray, in which we never have to depend on God. Now, of course, when bad circumstances come, we shouldn't immediately think, oh, shoot, what have I been doing wrong? How have I been thinking wrongly or even sinning in such a way that God would need to send this into my life? But that we, trusting in the absolute goodness of God as a good father, in his good care for us, we respond with whatever the circumstances, good or bad, what is God teaching me in this? How can he be shaping me more and more into the way that Jesus would respond? Which is exactly the point of his love for us in making all things work together for good. To cause us to love like Jesus. To cause us to worship like Jesus. To re respond to things and to pray like Jesus. To weep and trust and hope like Jesus. Verse 29, this is what Paul says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time, the, the, the time necessary tonight to like pick apart those words of foreknew and predestined. We might circle back and pick up uh, next week's section beginning with verse 29. But the point is, when God calls and moves toward a person, making them his own son or daughter, the purpose isn't just to give them relief from the existential dread that they've been staring into for their whole life. Not to just give them 
a paradise of heaven, which is just some better version of the life that we experience now. Like the best hunting trip that you've ever been on for eternity. Or, yeah, I, I remember my grandfather talking about the, the, the golf courses that he'd play on for eternity. And they'd be green and never a weed, right? Maybe, but man, that just seems like just... I just long for this life, but better and never ending. I don't think that's what God has come to do, what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to make people holy, to give them the greatest joy imaginable by causing them to live and to love like him. He's not just given us the family name, but he's shaping Christians into the family resemblance. Slowly and patiently, but surely, conformed to the image of Christ, like an ice sculptor. There's a, like a, there's a statue of Jesus, and then all of us are this block of ice that has no noticeable distinguishing characteristics. And then slowly and slowly, of, of over about 80 or 90 years, the Lord, by his spirit in the process of sanctification, sometimes gets a chainsaw out and just lops off huge chunks that look nothing like Jesus. Sometimes with a warm rag, melting and shaping a little bit here and a little bit there, but always shaping, always conforming us to the image of Christ. The love of God is to make us holy for his glory and for our own joy. But then Paul jumps into the DeLorean again, and it sure seems like, all this time travel has really, really confused him. It's really messed up his timeline because in verse 30 he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now these are some big theology words. But glorified means to be fully and finally made like Jesus. At his return when we see him, the apostle John writes that we will be made like him a body that no longer feels the groaning effects of the curse of futility, a wholeness of heart, soul, strength, and mind united together with one will, willing one thing, the glory of God. This is our greatest and future hope where we're no longer plagued by sin or by death. And yet, in what tense does Paul talk about this future, final, glorified state? Come on, man. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Like, we get that. He justified, he called, he justified people in their faith in Christ, but he also, past tense, glorified them. Not a, that he's, 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 he's like pixelating, right? He's disappearing from the Polaroid. But he's not confused. He's confident. Because while God has God not fully and finally glorified his children, Paul has seen the future. And if God has started the, the process of adoption, of justification, if the first fruits are here, then the full harvest is coming. The last part is as good as done. It's like Paul has zoomed out on the timeline and he sees all of it as one process. And he can see the past, the future, as one thing going together. It's as good as done. So Christian, is the suffering worth it? Is it worth it? The groaning, the crying, the asking, 
the wondering why, the doubt, the anxiety, all of it, is it worth it? You better believe it. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you're not yet convinced that all of this is worth it, let's finish this chapter up together next week as we consider the overwhelming love of God through suffering. And until then, hope in Christ. Hope in what he has done for you in his first coming with a fixed, confident expectation, hope in what he will do at his second coming. Whereas C.S. Lewis writes, God will make the feeblest and filthy of us, filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. Let's pray. Our Father, we sometimes struggle. We sometimes, in large degrees of suffering, sometimes in small yet still painful instances and times of wondering and doubting, of suffering, we do suffer. Some more than others, and certainly our brothers and sisters around the world and other parts of uh, and other economies and under other kinds of oppressive governments, they know suffering far better than we. And yet, though it's a marble, we still experience the marble. Father, help us. Holy Spirit, come to us more and more. Help us to turn to you, to expect your coming, to be supported by your groanings, your your coming alongside us, of underneath, uh, underneath us, of carrying us along in a growing and increasing hope that what God has started, what he is doing, he will certainly accomplish. Help these first fruits carry us along with a greater hope where we, will, where we await the full adoption as sons and daughters. Even so, Lord Jesus, we pray, come quickly. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.